Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampion, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 10th of February. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we're looking at the Olympics. What's the significance of the athletes China chose to light the Olympic flame? And of tennis star Peng Shuai's interview. So we, as a sports organization, are doing everything to ensure um, that she uh, is happy. And I don't think it's for us to be able to judge uh, in one way, just as it's not for you to judge either in one way or another her position. Then we talk about French President Emmanuel Macron's visit to Russia and Ukraine. I think today's discussion can start to show the direction of where we need to go in a de-escalation, the terms of which we already know. And the military build-up in Belarus. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Katie... You teased there at the top of the pod that you were going to explain the significance for us, for our listeners, of the athletes that China chose to light the Olympic flame. And one of those two is especially notable, I think, if you could briefly explain. So as, as regular listeners will know, there are allegations that the Chinese government is currently committing genocide and crimes against humanity against the Uyghur population and other ethnic minorities in the northwestern region of Xinjiang. Um, it's one of the reasons that the United States and other countries, including the UK, are staging a diplomatic boycott of these games. So there was a lot of concern in the build-up to the opening ceremony as to how China would address that issue. Would the organisers, as they have done at, at other events, have a display of Uyghurs dancing? How happy, how happy they are, how well they're treated in China, putting on this display of, of the harmonious society in which uh, the Chinese government insists all its citizens live. I don't think anyone expected uh, that they would do what they did, uh, which was to have a Uyghur athlete uh, like alongside a member of the ethnic Han majority. So if you watched the opening ceremony, the message really seemed to be, what genocide? Uh, look how well 
Uyghur athletes are, are treated. This particular athlete has been chosen to light the Olympic flame. But I think when you know what you do about conditions um, other Uyghurs are currently experiencing, it's quite a, it's, it's a troubling visual for a lot of people. There were other controversies involved in the torchbearing. One of the individuals who was among the torchbearers was a regiment commander who was involved in the 2020 clash between India and China, which led to India to, to stage a diplomatic boycott. But it, it does seem like this, like the, the, the choosing a Uyghur athlete is perhaps was the most notable thing of the opening ceremony. There were some in the United States, and this was indeed the official line from the White House, that, that this was an attempted distraction. It, it seems like if it's a distraction, it both... It, it, it seems like it's not so so much as an effective distraction. I mean, we're talking about it. Plenty of people have talked about it as a symbol that, you know, that the diplomatic boycotts don't work, that international condemnation has not worked, that China is going to pursue the, the path that it will and will very publicly assert that it's going to continue to do that. Or, or am I misreading? No, I think it, it absolutely shows that instead of trying to avoid or skirt round or play down any of these issues. Uh, China's addressing them head on and saying, here is our version of reality. Here is our narrative. Uh, look, this one ap- appears to be um, everything that is alleged to be happening in Xinjiang right now must just be a Western conspiracy theory. It's all just, you know, nasty Western attempts to politicize the, the games and undermine China. And I think it's not in- intended to persuade skeptics uh, or people who are closely following this issue that there isn't a problem there but it's a real attempt to just muddy the waters and make make it easier for people who didn't want to have to choose whether that's companies countries uh, individuals to be able to say well look there is there is some doubt there is some ambiguity over what's happening here and and China look China says it strongly values and protects the the rights of its of its ethnic minorities. So who are we to judge? Um, so I think it's really attempting to, to meet head on and bulldoze over um, these complaints rather than seriously uh, attempt to address or, or even acknowledge them. And there's another sort of example of that this week, not with the Uyghurs, but with respect to sexual assault in that Peng Shui, who is the, the tennis star, who who actually, Katie, if you want to speak a bit about her, her story and the development this week. Okay, so Peng Shui is one of China's best-known athletes. Um, she is a, a world doubles tennis champion. Uh, she's also a three-time Olympian herself. She, in November of last year, posted a long and absolutely heart-rending description on, on social media of what she alleged was a sexual assault by a former, very senior Chinese official, Zhang Gao Li, who is former vice premier, um, incidentally was a crucial figure in, in landing uh, the Beijing uh, Winter Olympic Games and in overseeing the initial preparations for them. She posted those allegations on her social media account on the 2nd of November. The post very quickly disappeared, as did she. Her fellow athletes, who included Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams, began posting on social media, hashtag where is Peng Shui, because there was such concern for her whereabouts. Um, She then reappeared in a series of very unconvincing videos, which you know, her companions just happened to talk about what date it was. The camera would pan from from the date uh, as she walked to a restaurant to her. These really kind of seem to be proof of life videos to show where is Peng Shui. Um, she has subsequently now done a couple of interviews in very carefully controlled situations where she's really attempted to walk back those allegations. She doesn't deny that she wrote the post, 
but she's tried now twice. And in this latest example is with, with an international um, organization with the French sports newspaper L'Equipe. And um, she has said that it's all just, it's been a misunderstanding. Um, her post was misunderstood and has never accused anyone of, of sexual assault. And she has now also been spotted around the, around the Olympic village. She's been in the front row watching, watching a couple of events. It all seems to be this real attempt, again, just to to really confuse the, the narrative here and to say, look, Peng Shui is, is now saying nothing happened. She's smiling. She's attending the Olympic Games. She looks to be in good physical health. So we should just move on. We should just really forget that she ever said anything. But I think when you know China's history of, of, of staging forced confessions, of having people talk about how well they've been treated, even when that's absolutely the opposite of what's happening. It shouldn't reassure anyone at all. And indeed, while the, while the IOC has said it's not for them to judge, whereas she is currently speaking under duress, the Women's Tennis Association, which has, has been very strong throughout this and has suspended its tournaments in China, um, as a result, has said this latest appearance doesn't reassure them at all. This doesn't alleviate any of their concerns, and they are still demanding a full independent investigation into her original allegations, although you know that is extremely unlikely to happen. Katie wrote a wonderful piece on, on how Peng Shui has given this interview, but Zhang Gaoli has, has not been made to answer questions on this. And we will put that in the show notes. Before we move on, I wanted to ask both of you, you know, I I, I just, I think that the Olympic, this, this Olympics, it just seems it's, it's very covered and we're talking about it, but I feel like fewer people, at least in my orbit are, are watching it and consuming it. I have not watched any of it. And I think part of it is a combination of, you know, the, the Olympics in Tokyo, the summer Olympics were pushed back. And so we're just a few months ago, but also this sort of or, or perhaps ethical questions about consuming any Olympics are coming to <laughs> coming to a head with this specific set of games. So my question for both of you, Ido and then Katie, is are you watching these Olympics and, and why or why not? Uh, no, <laughs> basically because there are very few winter sports that I care about, but also they just look so ridiculous. Like there is no snow in Beijing. Like some of the skiing events are held in some industrial park with the Olympic logo, like painted onto a like what looks like a cooling tower of some kind of power plant like it's beyond dystopian and it's quite almost farcical and it's, it's not going to be the first i mean obviously there, there's a human rights uh, issue which is depressing as katie has set out very clearly and poignantly but also it's almost a kind of climate issue and there are questions as to how long you can really have winter olympics as the climate heats up but also there's an increasing trend to have sports tournaments in places which are just climatically completely unsuited you've got this football world cup in uh, qatar which is going to be have to be held this winter because it's just too hot and mm-hmm. these winter olympics are uh, also another example of of the complete unsuitability of the environment really and katie what about you I would highlight uh, our, our colleague Philippe Nuttall um, wrote, wrote an excellent article about the, the environmental impact um, of these games, which is really worth reading. Um, I'm on the opposite side of this uh, to Ido in terms of some of the sports, uh, the big air, the absolutely terrifying aerial events, the, the snowboard cross. I, I really enjoy watching those events, but I think it's really hard to do that with these Olympics and just turn off the part of your brain that's thinking about what else is happening and what's going on outside of the the Olympic cordon. We will also put Philippa's piece in the show notes and encourage listeners to read that as well. With that, we move from Beijing to Moscow, which had a very important, very French visitor this week. Ido, 
Can you give us the highlights of President Macron's travels this week? I think he'd love that description of himself. Very important and very French. I think uh, that's exactly <laughs> how he wants to think of himself. Uh, yes, President Macron was uh, in Moscow to be his important and French self. He travelled to Russia earlier this week, and after that, he made his way to Kiev for the actually first visit of, of a sitting French president for, I think, over two decades, which is uh, embarrassing in, it, in its own right. And of course, he was there to, uh, to talk with both leaders and try and diffuse tensions, the tensions that we've been seeing at Russia's border with Ukraine for several months now and attempt to stave off a potential Russian invasion of the country. So you, for any listener who has somehow missed this, are also hosting a special series called France Elects. Actually, this week's episode is on foreign affairs. So listeners who are interested um, should, should certainly check that out. But we've spoken a lot about, you know, what on this podcast, have spoken about what the Russian buildup on Ukraine's border, you know, how, how it sort of looks through in, in Moscow and in Washington. I guess, how do you see all of this is if you can sort of give us a little teaser about how this, the, the, the French political factor in all of this? Well, I suppose one of the arguments in favor of Macron making his way to Moscow is that of all the Western leaders, he's probably amongst the best place to speak to Russia because there's a very long tradition in French foreign policy of attempting to find some sort of accommodation with Russia for a sort of pan-European order implicitly at the expense of the Americans. And that's a very long tradition in French foreign policy, which most modern French leaders have, have placed themselves in a tradition of. And also him on a personal level. So three years ago, he invited Macron to his uh, to his sort of holiday retreat. And he spoke about uh, already then, long before this build-up and the latest set of Russian demands, he was talking about his desire to forge a common European uh, security order, including Russia, with Russia having a seat at mm. the table. So he's always signals a relative w openness and willingness to talk to Russia when probably more than, certainly more than the Americans, more than the British. So in terms of a kind of strong military power within the NATO alliance, he is probably among the best place to, to have that conversation. Now, in the in, in preparing for this podcast, you suggested that, that while this was the headline-grabbing story of the week, it was not, in fact, necessarily, all due respect to Macron, the most substantive. So take us back to Belarus and tell us what's happening there. Yeah, so the thing with Macron is that he turned up and he had these conversations and there were slightly positive noises, but nothing has really happened bluntly because the demands that Russia has issued cannot really be met in any kind of substantive way by NATO. Like They just can't. So one of the more interesting or more substantive stories, as you said, in the past week has been a quite significant military buildup in Belarus, Russian military buildup in Belarus, which obviously is to the north of Ukraine. So obviously there's been a lot of attention in the past few months on, uh, on Russia's border with, uh, with eastern Ukraine. But now... Over, over recent weeks, they've been moving equipment and troops into Belarus, which is to the north of Ukraine. And the Baltic states, two of which border Belarus and Poland, say this is the biggest build-up, certainly since the end of the Soviet Union. And they think it's a really big change in the strategic balance of power in Northern Europe if, if it's perennialized, if it's made permanent. So basically, previously, 
Belarus had acted as a kind of buffer between Russia and some NATO states. So this was a kind of, this was a, a, a stretch of land which did not have a permanent Russian military presence, although it was very closely aligned to Russia. The current president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, had always refused a permanent Russian military presence in Belarus. And so Belarus functioned as a kind of buffer state between the eastern flank of some NATO member states and Russia. And so the Baltic the Baltic officials, I've been speaking to officials, to ministers from the Baltic states, for example, in Lithuania, right? So Lithuania only has a border with Russia in the form of a small border with the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea. But they say if the Russian troops stay in Belarus after military exercises, which are scheduled to start, as you're listening to this uh, today on the 10th of February and last until the 20th, if the Russian troops stay there after that or there's a kind of or it maybe if they don't maybe if they for example they leave but they leave their equipment behind and so they could come back to manis in very short order that represents a permanent change and a quite significant change in terms of the balance of power in northern europe with regard to russian forces versus nato forces certainly in conventional terms and they say it's a really big deal and, and the people with whom you've spoken, do they think that that, that, that is what's going to happen, right? Or, or is it sort of like, well, this could significantly change the, the, the constellation in Northern Europe, or is it that they are pretty sure that this is what's underway? They all think this, this is a permanent change. Now, of course, part of this is politics, right? They're, they're never going to be unhappy with more NATO troops being sent to, to bolster their their position with regards to Russia, the Baltics, Poland, they're never going to say, no thanks, we've, we've got enough NATO troops now. They are always nervous about Russia, given the history, given their, in many cases, extensive borders with Russia. But nonetheless, they do seem to think that this is qualitatively different than what we've seen, what we've seen before, and they're really nervous about it. And they're right. So part of what they're saying, what was put to me is that it's a kind of it doesn't necessarily represent an immediate threat to the Baltic states, right? So it doesn't mean that Russia is putting in the capabilities to potentially invade, you know, Lithuania tomorrow, as it looks like it is doing with Ukraine, or certainly something in that direction. What it is instead is a kind of maximizing its options strategy, where it just gives Russia more options, more leverage as it attempts to put pressure on NATO's eastern flank and these countries, uh, which it has very tense relations with uh, historically and in recent years too. It just gives Russia more options. I, I did want to bring in Katie here because Katie, uh, if, if memory serves you, report, but, uh, if memory serves you were reporting from the region it, back in 2014 uh, when Russia annexed Crimea, having reported from there and, and experienced that and now watching I guess, are there any parallels that, that have been striking to you? I mean, I think on, on Belarus, firstly, it, it's striking to me that this the Russian presence does seem to be the price for Lukashenko staying in power. Um, I think back then we saw him try to hedge to, to remain sort of neutral and certainly not, not to back the Russian annexation of Crimea. But it increasingly seems like if he wants to stay in power, he will not be able to to maintain that sort of semi, uh, I think independent is probably the wrong word, but ability to play both sides off against the other. Um, it does seem like the, the 
greater Russia. I think we're starting to see movement towards a, you know, a, a de facto Russian military presence, whatever, however it's dressed up and whether it's you know, just exercises in continual rotation or whether something more, more formal happens. But I think whereas Belarus back then um, was trying to remain between the two sides, um, increasingly that's not the case. I, mean, I think what strikes me, you know, how back then, whichever side of the line you were on, you just heard this completely different reality. You know, I remember being in, being in Kiev and being in, in the more Western parts of Ukraine and hearing hearing one version of what was happening and then crossing the, the line of contact into Eastern Ukraine and into the uh, into these self-proclaimed people's republics and just hearing this completely different version of reality. Um, and I think it's just so important to keep in mind watching this from the outside that this feels very different on the ground. There has been a conflict going on there now for many, many years. Mm-hmm. This is a continuous um this is a continuous war zone for people who are who are living through it, and so this I think feels very different on the ground to how it does looking at it from from this high level and, and from so far away. But in twenty fourteen, for 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 people in Ukraine, in the way that you know that that we may have stopped looking at it so much from the outside. So in the Baltics, they say there's been a real sea change since twenty twenty, with pretty much as you said they. Lukashenko had long resisted a permanent Russian military presence in Belarus, but it increasingly looks like part of the price for keeping him in power and for Russia backing his continued rule against these massive protests was were concessions on including on the military front in terms of politics, in terms of society and, and Russian influence in the country. And so we've got this constitutional referendum, which is coming up in the, in the country, I think, scheduled to be held this month. And part of it is is to remove language on Belarus's neutrality and on that the country will not host nuclear weapons on its territory. And so basically, the Baltics look at that and they think that basically means nuclear weapons coming closer to NATO's eastern border and Russian troops coming closer to, to, to NATO's eastern border. And one Lithuanian minister said to me, well, if they stay, if the Russian troops stay in Belarus, that means we have de facto an extra 600 kilometer border with, with Russia. And that poses really quite big questions for how NATO responds. Mm. Well, certainly one that we will continue to watch and cover here at The New Statesman. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. is time for a very quick version of the section that we like to call you ask, ask us. us that was great oh you two did that so well this time well this question <laughs> this question comes to us from twitter and it is if any elected representatives or candidates are found to have been involved in instigating the january 6th insurrection do you think they will be stopped from holding slash taking office by the 14th amendment section three and what court will enforce this so this is a reference to obviously the storming of the Capitol on January 6, 2020, an investigation is underway. And there is indeed, it is indeed the law of the land that if you have taken an oath and then you are part of staging an insurrection or rebellion against the government, you cannot hold office. You can't be a member of Congress, either in the House or the Senate or president or vice president again. However, as we saw right after the event, the Senate could have, after the House's own investigation, hearings, and then the trial in the Senate, the Senate basically said, nope, Trump can run again if he wants. And if that is what happened in the days immediately after the event, I personally am not confident that anybody else involved in this is going to be barred from holding office. The other thing I wanted to note is that it's, it's very interesting. So last week, the Republican Party, uh, the Republican National Committee censured Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, basically because they've been taking part in this inve- the House investigation of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And the Republican National Committee said that they were participating in, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse, end quote. But then what I think is more interesting is that the RNC walked it back and said, well, we don't mean the storming of the Capitol. We mean people who were around and asking questions about the legitimacy of the election and uh, and so on and so forth. So what I think we are going to see from the Republican side is basically throwing under the bus the people who physically entered the building and engaged in like a, a physical act of violence and and try to separate out themselves, including elected officials who stoke the flames. That is a long-winded way of saying that I unfortunately do not think that we will see um, comeuppance for those who encouraged, encouraged this. Katie, do you want to add something? Or? I was just going to say, I think having just 
written, written a book and spent a lot of years looking at how um, authoritarian political systems uh, rewrite history to suit the needs of those in power. It is really striking and troubling to me watching the way this is playing out here and arguments over uh, whether history is something people should feel comfortable uh, with and should make people feel mm-hmm. good about the past. That's what all the autocrats say. And I don't think that's that's a model uh, for the United States to be following. Yeah. I, and I would just add, I wrote on this recently, you know, book bannings that are happening across the country to, in, in part, to encourage this rosy version of history where people can feel good about the United States. Like that's not, <laughs> that's actually not how you learn history. Katie, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it's sort of surreal to see it happening mm-hmm. in real time, both with book bannings and with like revision of a historical event that we, we mm-hmm. all just lived through. This was pretty mm-hmm. recent. Like we watched it. And now to be told like, that's not what happened is it's disorienting. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with author Professor Ravinder Kaur on This Year in Indian Politics. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.